0: You're listening to Mitnick's Monthly Brushstrokes, a podcast on the art of outsmarting, the fun part that sets you apart. I'm Keith Mitnick, author of Don't Eat the Bruises, how to foil their plans to spoil your case. For more information, please visit KeithMitnick.com. This month, I wanna talk to you about what I call putting an end to belittling pain you can't see. And it goes right at the heart of what many of us do as a regular part of our caseload. And that is the case where someone's, let's say, been rear-ended. They've got a herniated disc. They may or may not have had surgery. And they are active. So it's not having a profound impact on their activities, And the defense comes along and belittles that pain and makes it sound like no big deal. They're having pain, but boy, they're getting on just fine with their lives. And we know how effective that can be with a jury. And I tried a case, again, with my partner, Matt Morgan. Actually, I tried three cases, but two of them were so similar that we developed some strategies that were very, very effective. Both of them were million-dollar verdicts. Both of them were the case where there was a herniated disc, no surgery, relatively young client who um, there were surveillance films that the defense loved. They didn't show our client doing anything they claimed they could not do. They weren't an aha. They just looked so healthy in them. One of them, the young man, was mowing the biggest lawn I think I've ever seen in my life with a push mower and then went in a garage and laid on a bench that had a bar on it, lifted up the weights, put them down, and then pulled up to stretch his back. He never benched it, but, you know, it was a bench in his garage, and he explained after he mowed the yard that's how he stretched. The other one involved another young man. The video showed him unloading a big U-Haul of box after box after box coming down that ramp. He had two big friends next to him. This guy wasn't that big. The two big friends never lifted a hand. I thought, would you please help this guy? So, in addition, that particular case, the person was an assistant football coach on a high school team. He was a teacher. And part of his job was he worked with the ends and he'd throw passes downfield to him during football season over and over and over and over. So those are the facts. So guess what the defense did? Mocked and belittled the pain and made it sound like, you know, he had not hurt. And if he is hurt, it isn't a big deal. And so Matt and I worked on that those cases and we tried them. They were like this perfect Petri dish for strategy building because we tried them in back-to-back weeks in front of the exact same judge. We started Monday on one, got a verdict on Friday, started on the next Monday, got a verdict on Friday. It was eerie how familiar the two cases were. And both of them resulted in million-dollar verdicts. I think one was 900 and the other million one. i I'd round them both to say they were both a million. And they were not some wild way-out-there thing. I am confident. You can reproduce full justice like that. But here's the key to it. We have to recognize what the defense is going to do and what's wrong with it. Why are they wrong that those videos and the lack of surgeries and the getting on and bucking up with life doesn't equate to no big deal? Because it is a big deal. So we developed some strategies to just educate the jury on what they already knew. And I'm just going to run through some of those things that are really amount to reminders to things the jurors already know in their life and attaching some powerful words and phrases so those points would really stick. The first one is pilot light pain, great imagery, and explain to the jury this isn't cane pain. It isn't the kind of pain where my client has to use a cane or a wheelchair. It's what's often referred to as pilot light pain. Why? Because folks have seen pilot lights under hot water heaters or in gas stoves. And what it means is that it's always there flickering. Now, you can turn it up and sometimes it's a blaze. but when you turn it back down, it doesn't go away. It's there, present, flickering all the time. People may not recognize it that don't know them. They on the outside look perfectly fine. A loved one may notice by the look in their eye or their mood, but others would never know. But they know because it's always there, flickering on the inside, sometimes flaring. And it's wearing, it's wearing like background noise that gets on your nerves, but you can still talk over it. And you can adjust and almost forget about it because that's the new normal that you have to live with. Because it's not the kind of pain that prevents experiences. It's the kind that interferes with the enjoyment of those experiences. And we care as human beings about pleasures. Pleasures are treasures. And it doesn't mean life's all pleasure. It's not. Life can be hard. But certainly those pleasures of life, people treasure and don't want them diminished by living with pain that at some level is always there flickering, because it's the presence that's felt but not seen. Someone can still go to the movie and enjoy the show, but they're squirming a little bit. It's not the same as experiences going there without having pain in the neck that's there at some level all the time. They can participate in sporting events, but they're going to be more careful and pay the price. They can go to church and enjoy a sermon, but they can't wait to get out of that pew and stretch and move a little. So that's the kind of interference, not so much with doing as with the experience of doing. And here's what really matters. He is young. It's only going to get worse. And over time, because this is a verdict for all time, over time, this is going to start interfering more with the actual doing. And we don't come back 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now, and redo all this. We get it right now, or we don't get it right at all. And there is an example that really makes sense of this, and that is the crick in the neck. Now, I've done the crick in the neck analogy on other podcasts, but it is so important to finalize this I want to repeat it. So those of you that have heard me speak before on the crick in the neck analogy, bear with me. It's it's worth repeating because it truly brings all of these concepts home. And it goes like this. It's like somebody that wakes up in the morning because they slept wrong and they got a crick in their neck. And a guy rolls out of bed and moans a little and his wife says, what's wrong? And he says, I slept wrong. I got a crick in my neck. She says, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, honey. He says, oh, it'll be fine. It'll be gone you know, shortly. And that day, everything he does, it's there. He picks up a briefcase. He feels it. He gets in his car and goes to turn around to back out. He feels it. He changes lanes, checks the blind spot. He feels that he gets to the office. If he sits for long, he gets up because it's starting to wear a little. If he's up a while, he sits because that's not comfortable after a while. And the same thing on the way home in the car. And he gets home. Wife says, how was your day? And he says. Uh, fine, except I got this crick in my neck driving me crazy. Well, honey, if it doesn't get better, maybe you ought to go to the doctor. Nah, I don't need to go to the doctor. Goes to bed, gets up the next morning. Ugh. Wife says, what? I was hoping it'd be gone. That day, all the same thing, driving the car, sitting, standing, picking up the briefcase. But now it's starting to wear on his nerves. Now it's starting to put him in a bad mood. Now, guess what? He didn't call in sick. It's not that kind of pain. He isn't walking around the office holding his neck going, Ow! Wow! It hurts. Everybody would say, You big baby. Get a grip. It's not that kind of pain. Nobody at the office would know. His wife does. But the people at the office have no clue because he's able to just get on with it. Drives home that day, walks in the house, and he's cranky with the kids. And the wife says, what's the matter with you? And he says, I'm sorry, this neck thing's not gone. It's putting me in a bad mood. Well, you need to go to the doctor. This time, maybe a little less about concern and a little more about not wanting a crank in the house. Goes to bed, wakes up on day three. Wife's in brushing her teeth and she hears, hallelujah. She says, what? He says, it's gone. Well, that's what this kind of pilot light pain is, except there is no hallelujah ever. Now, when you say that to the jury, they get it at a profound level. This is a big deal because they all have done it. And they're thinking, if you're telling me I'd have that for the rest of my life, you'd have to back a Brink's truck up to do justice. And you have put an end to this nonsense of belittling pain that you can't see. And you can get full justice. And I want to add two little void dire points before I'm done. One is I worry from the beginning the jurors are going to get a bad impression because my client's sitting over there looking fine. And I finally figured out a way to deal with it. This is a new, relatively new one. In jury selection, I will say, I need to ask you folks something that concerns me. Now's not the time for me to talk to you about what's going on inside my client. We've all heard the phrase, you can't judge a book by its cover. So I'm not going to be talking about it because it'd be inappropriate. There'll be plenty of time we get in the evidence. We're going to open that book up and give you evidence of what is going on. But here's my concern. If my client squirms around over there, y'all may go look at him hamming it up for us. If my client sits perfectly still, some of y'all might say, sure, it doesn't look hurt to me, and there's really no good answer. So if he sits there like he ought to, out of respect, can all of y'all promise me that you'll wait till we get to the evidence and not start prejudging it under these kind of circumstances? Can we do that? Not only will they agree, you'll see a look in a bunch of their faces that, you got me, I was starting to think that. So it's important. And the last one is we're dealing with surveillance. And I always void dire there's surveillance when there's surveillance like that. Not the surveillance where they catch your client fibbing about something. There, there is no strategy for that. Get another case. We're not mercenaries where they're pursuing justice. But I'm talking about this kind where they just look healthy. It's not inconsistent. I always ask the jurors about it. And most folks have seen surveillance film, they've seen the guy jumping out of a wheelchair and doing a jig after getting a big result claiming he needed a wheelchair. It makes you sick. How many of you have seen that? They all go, yes. It's terrible for the system. It's terrible from every perspective. But there are other kinds of surveillance where the defense follows and films, and they don't completely consistent with what the person says. It's just they look, they're getting on with life and healthy. And look healthy looking on the outside, no different than they may act in the courtroom walking in or in the halls where you can see him. But seeing on the film, people go, "Mm, hmm, that looks like he's fine. Now, here's my concern. How many of you feel that if the defense went to the time, trouble, and expense of getting surveillance, there must be something to it? There must be some faking or exaggerating gone, even if they didn't catch it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gone to the time, trouble, and expense to get in the first place. How many of you feel like that? I promise you, you're going to have people saying that. Yes, yes, yes. And those are people are biased. And you follow up with, so would it be fair to say that we are starting out with you thinking my clients probably exaggerating by the mere fact there is some surveillance? Would that be fair? And you couldn't assure the court you could put that aside. That is your best, honest answer. And those people should be gone for cause. And once you've done that, then all these other pieces will fall into place. So this is an extraordinarily important one. Maybe you want to re-listen to. And the gist of it is this: if you use the right words phrases and resurrect from the juror's own life experiences, you can put an end to belittling pain that you can't see. For more information, please visit KeithMitnick.com.